the closest I've ever gotten to a fist fight was with a 300-pound Tunisian. Uh, and I had never met this 300-pound Tunisian before. I think I had never met any 300-pound Tunisian before. And we met on a college campus in the commons of the University of Missouri uh, in Kansas City, where it was, uh, it was a special week. You know, it was Religious Tolerance Week, which is ironic, because we were about to just come to blows, this Tunisian and me, uh, over, you want to guess what it was over? <laughs> our different religious beliefs. Uh, we were really going at it. I mean, our faces might have been six inches apart, and we, we were pointing fingers at each other's faces at the worst of it. You know, it got really intense. I was tempted at one point to throw the first punch, you know, um, but uh, I was scared. <laughs> because she was huge, and, um, and I just really didn't want any part of her, you know? So I held back. But when I look at, at what happened, you know, the fact that it happened on uh, Religious Tolerance Week, uh, I, I think that's not accidental. I think things like Religious Tolerance Week on college campuses can be very frustrating for people of faith. You wouldn't think so, would you? But it can be a very frustrating experience for people who are, because of our convictions, boxed in together with anyone else who has convictions about God and faith or a book. And we're all kind of labeled together, categorized in one narrow column. Uh, and they put us on the commons with our own little tables and they say, look how nice these religious people can be to each other. You know, they really can get along. It's kind of patronizing. It's the one day out of the year when, you know, institutions of higher learning pretend to really care what theologians think or what we believe. But they don't really care what we believe. They just know that we believe. And because all of us believe in something, they look at us all the same. And there's something very frustrating to me uh, about that. It feels a little uh, condescending. It feels like the kind of pat on the head I give my son whenever he insists that he's an actual Pokemon trainer. Like, you know, that's, that's really nice, son. You know, that's great. Now go play, son. You know, like uh, that, kind of, uh, that kind of patronizing feeling is the kind of feeling I get from Religious Tolerance Week. G.K. Chesterton said this. He's one of my favorite Christian thinkers. He said that there are those who hate Christianity and call their hatred an all-embracing love for all religions. So that doesn't make sense on the face of it, but you really have to think about um, what he is saying because the easiest way to condescend and undercut any, uh, any faith tradition is by mindlessly lumping it in with every other faith tradition and saying, y'all are all the same. You're all paths going to the same place. You all believe the same things. You're all a bunch of supernaturalists. Now go and play together. And you know the academics are like, we'll be over here being smart and sophisticated while y'all go show us how well you can get along. You know That kind of a feeling from, uh, from secular culture is sometimes what is transmitted by things like religious tolerance week. Um, 
So anyway, back to this Tunisian woman and I. We were, we were really going after it. I was a law student at the time. I was really excited about all the skills I was developing for argumentation and you know point-by-point -point analysis. And I probably went a little too hard uh, and heavy on my arguments. I didn't have a very merciful approach. I went right after her. Went right after the Quran, which I have a copy of right here, uh, which I had read then and I've read again since. I have a lot of respect for the Quran, but it's got some issues in my opinion. And I went right after it with her. And I said to her, uh, in a not so nice tone of voice, I talked about how discombobulated the Quran reads, like how confusing it is, like there's no linear thought throughout the Quran. It doesn't tell a singular story. There's really just a bunch of, in my opinion, a bunch of laws mixed in with a couple of like, a bunch of tidbits or anecdotes about how to live a, a good life or a healthy life or an orderly life. You know, and I said, it's, I said it's disorganized. I said it's repetitive. And then I said, on top of all that, it's just one man's testimony. We're supposed to just take it on faith that this one man really met with the angel Gabriel in secret, in private, and Gabriel told him all this stuff with no other like historical corroboration, you know, this one guy who, by the way, I said, might have somewhat questionable character, like there's some issues there with Muhammad, like there's some, some issues you might have with him being a very proud slave owner, some very, some very difficult issues around his, you know, married, married history, married life. He had maybe 11 wives, maybe 13 wives. There's two women in his life that might have been wives. They might have been slaves with benefits. We're not really sure. The historical record doesn't really bear it out. We know that he divorced one of his wives, I said, because she was, and I quote in the Quran, I quote, she was getting too old and fat. There was another wife, his favorite. The scripture says, Aisha, who he married, when she was six or seven years old. The Quran speaks of her bringing her dolls with her to her new husband's house. And when I mentioned that, my Tunisian counterpart said, but Muhammad was gracious and they didn't consummate the marriage until she was nine or 10. And I thought, don't think you're making the point you think you're making. The, the, the conversation just kept getting more and more intense, more and more heated, and she was livid, and she, in turn, came after my holy book. She said, no, the, the Quran is perfect in every way. Your Bible is the one that's flawed. And I said, it's not as flawed as I've pointed out the Quran is. And she said, well, why don't you turn in your Bible, which I had with me because it was Religious Tolerance Week. And she said, turn in your Bible to Matthew 12. And I turned my Bible to Matthew 12. And she said, read verse 40 for me. And it said, I read it out loud. It said, just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights, the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. And then she said, tell me, how many nights does the Bible say Jesus was in the tomb? And instinctively, I said three. And she said, lies. She said, Jesus died on a Friday and he rose on Sunday morning. That's two nights. You don't even know your own book, she said to me. How can you put your faith in a book that's built on such blatant lies and inaccuracies? She had me right where she wanted me, man, because that's what she was looking for were the technical, literal, detailed truths. And I've looked back on that, that was 10 years ago, and I've not forgotten a single minute of what happened between me and that Tunisian woman. 
I'm glad in retrospect, I'm really glad I spoke up because that shows courage, but I wish I'd done it differently. I wish I had done it more graciously. I wish I had engaged in a conversation instead of ignited an argument. And I believe that can be done. I hope that now I am more prepared to have a more thoughtful argument with people or conversation with people that don't share my same worldview. And I hope that we are becoming the kind of church that prepares you to have the same kinds of conversations so that we don't allow secular culture to continue to just lump us all together as if we're just always of one mind and all of our paths are going to the same place and we really all believe the same things because I think that is the most disrespectful thing you can do to the various world religions and world views. So, different religions promote different things. Holy books are very different. We can disagree without being disagreeable. All right. I want to go through a few uh, examples of world religions that you have heard of and you know of, some of you may be really familiar with, and I want to just go through some of the things we hold in common with these religious groups versus some of the things that, that where our paths diverge. Okay? Um, I'll begin with Judaism. This is a really easy one. We, we hold the most in common with Judaism than with any other world religion. We are very close in many ways. Uh, Two-thirds of our Bible is the Jewish Bible, the Hebrew Bible, exactly as they have it today. I've got it right here. It's two-thirds of our Bible is right here. Um, we add the New Testament on at, at the second part, right? So there's, uh, there's uh, the Old Testament, which is the Hebrew Bible, all right? So we agree on that. We agree on a lot of ethical issues. We agree that God is a God of justice. We agree that we, as God's people, are called to look out for the poor and the downtrodden and those who are powerless. We are called to provide for the orphans and the widows. We are called to take care of the weak. We all agree on that. And there are several other things about the nature of God that we agree on, very important things. But there are also a lot of things we disagree on with Jewish people. Doesn't mean we can't be friends, we can't be neighbors, we can't love each other, but there are things just fundamentally we disagree on. I mean, obviously uh, there is the, the issue of the person of Jesus that's a little bit uh, different. You know, Jewish people believe that they are the chosen race of God, that they are chosen by God to be in a special and unique relationship with God. We agree with them to a certain extent, but we believe Jesus opened the doors wider. That through Jesus, the whole world is invited into a special and unique, awesome relationship with God. And God wants to be in that relationship with the whole world and not just with a chosen few anymore. So we disagree on what Jesus meant and what he did. For most Jewish people, Jesus at best was a very gifted, radical rabbi whose followers got out of hand after he died. At worst, Jesus either never existed or he was himself a total fraud. If you, uh, you know, did a survey of Jewish people around the world, you would hear all kinds of answers about Jesus. Most Jewish people are still looking for their Messiah to come. The true Messiah. We believe he has already come. It's a fundamental difference. We can't all be right. We can't all be equally valid in that belief. Someone has it right, someone has it wrong. Jesus either is who he said he was or he's, or he's not. And we're left to choose. Now, the religious group that we have, this, I think, the second most uh, in common with might surprise you. It's, it's Islam. Uh, which if you listen to news reports and keep an eye on what's happening in the world, you might not think we have anything in common with Muslims, but it's, 
not true, actually. Muslims and Christians have a lot in common. Muslims, like us and Jews, believe in the God of Abraham. He is the one true God. Muslims uh, rely heavily on the Bible for their own faith and their own understanding. 23 Bible characters are mentioned in the Quran. And you have to know their stories from the Bible in order to understand what the Quran is saying about them. So the most oft-mentioned name in the Quran is not Muhammad, it's Moses. Uh, Jesus actually is mentioned more than Muhammad in the Quran. That may surprise you. Mary, the mother of Jesus, is mentioned more in the Quran than in the Bible. So, uh, so, so there are significant similarities. Muslims do respect and even in some cases venerate or look up to Jesus, but not as the Messiah, not as divine. They don't believe Jesus was crucified, actually. They believe that he didn't actually die. He was taken up to heaven miraculously, kind of like Elijah was in the Old Testament, but he didn't. He wasn't crucified. Um, but they do look up to him as a prophet. But Muhammad, for most Muslim people, Muhammad is a superior prophet. He is the last, the final prophet who brings down the final word from God given to him by the, by the angel Gabriel over 23 years time. And so that's where we have, uh, that's where we have the Quran from is that 23 year revelation uh, by the angel Gabriel to, uh, to, to Muhammad. All right. So uh, significant differences here. For Muslims, the Quran uh, is a little bit different than the Bible. The Quran is more like a guide. If you read through the Quran, what you'll find is, uh, is very similar to what we have in the book of Proverbs, mixed with what we have in like the Levitical laws. So a bunch of laws, a bunch of rules, do's and don'ts, um, and, and then interspersed in there is like some anecdotes about uh, how to live wisely, how to live holy lives, right? Uh, and, and so the Quran takes on a different meaning. The Quran is also, uh, the book itself is holy for Muslim people. So technically, I'm not supposed to be touching this book right now because I am not a believer. I'm not supposed to technically be touching or reading this book according to Islamic law, right? Uh, and, and uh, you know, if you have dirty hands, if you've... Uh, if you've been with your spouse or significant other in the last 24 hours, you're not supposed to handle this or whatever. And, and, and if, if you damage this book, like damaging the book itself, because the book itself is the holy word of God. It's not just the words or the ideas in the book, it's the book itself. If you in any way damage or harm this book, then uh, in some, several countries, you can face uh, the penalty of death. That's just the way it is, right? We don't look at it. That way, we look at it a little bit different. I've spilled coffee on my Bible like a hundred times, and I thank Jesus every time for setting us free from that kind of you know, relig uh, rigid religious thinking um, that is uh, apparent in other uh, religious paths. I was going to spend uh, quite a bit of time breaking down uh, uh, the beliefs of Mormons as well. Mormons are a growing religious group worldwide. There's 16 million Mormons uh, in the world. Uh, I am not going to have time to, to dig into all of that. It's not the most important thing I was going to say today anyway. I will say that I get uh, emails and Facebook messages, and I get tagged on Facebook pictures almost every month by people who want to congratulate me for my performance in the Broadway show, The Book of Mormon, because there is an Eric Huffman in The Book of Mormon. This is him. 
And they're always so disappointed when they find out that I'm just some boring preacher from Houston. You know, one day I'm just going to, I'm going to go with it. I'm just going to offer him an autograph or, you know, be famous for a while or whatever. But just in case you're wondering, this is not me. I don't moonlight uh, as a Broadway actor. Um, but the, the, the Book of Mormon itself, combined with like Mitt Romney's presidential run, I think really raised the level of interest in the Mormon uh, faith. We hold some things in common with Mormons. You know, we hold a belief in the God of Abraham. Uh, Mormons uh, obviously look up to Jesus like we do, in some ways like we do. And, uh, and there's also among Mormons this belief that we should take care of each other, that we should look out for the poor and, uh, and the weak, right? Um, but that's pretty much where the similarities end. Uh, Mormons believe that the Book of Mormon was revealed uh, in secret to Joseph Smith, who was a 24-year-old treasure hunter by trade uh, when it was revealed to him. Joseph Smith, by the way, grew up in a Methodist church. Way to go, Methodists. <laughs> kind of let one slip through the cracks there. Maybe you could have done better in the confirmation process. I don't know, but uh, he, uh, he said that these golden plates, he found these golden plates uh, buried in a hill outside of Rochester, because where else would you bury golden plates? Outside of Rochester, New York. He found them, he said when he found them, an angel named Garoni uh, told him to translate them, and they were written on in a, in a language no one had ever heard of. He called it Reformed Egyptian. His claim was that the Native Americans who lived in that place in antiquity came over from the Middle East, from Egypt particularly, and uh, settled in this area. And so they wrote on these golden plates what Jesus told them to write, because after Jesus was crucified, he visited North America, unbeknownst to us. He visited North America to these formerly Egyptian Native Americans and told them uh, what to write down on these golden plates in a language that doesn't exist. And when, when he was asked how he translated Reformed Egyptian, he said that the angel Moroni made him some special glasses that enabled him to uh, translate these things. And the last thing Moroni told him was, do not ever show these golden plates to anyone else, ever. So it was uh, kind of a secretive deal, but man, it took off. Like, uh, as I said, 16 million plus now call the Mormon church uh, home, right? And so there's some, uh, some overlap, very little, I guess. I was going to share a little bit about Hinduism as well. Hinduism is a huge religion. Uh, I just don't have time to get into it. Uh, you can Google it at your own risk. Uh, you probably won't find a lot of accurate information there. But uh, there's all kinds of, I got a couple of Indi uh, Hindu uh, holy books up here. Uh, it's fun stuff to learn about. I will just tell you that we have less in common with Hindus than we do with uh, Mormons even. And, uh, and that's okay. That doesn't mean we have to be... Uh, have to have animosity toward each other. We can love each other. We can be neighbors together. We can have conversations together because different religions can believe different things. We can't be all right. We can't all be equally valid or equally true, but we can believe different things. We can talk about our differences uh, you know, in, a, in a respectful way. We can disagree without being disagreeable. Now I want to spend the rest of our time talking specifically about the Bible. If you have your Bible, you can just take it, uh, you can flip through it, you can familiarize yourself more with it, and you can think about it as I talk us through here. Because I believe, as biased as I know that I am, I own that bias, I believe that the Bible, as objectively as I can say this, I believe that the Bible stands apart from the rest of the major religions' holy books. I just, 
I believe it. I've read them all. I've gone through my own dark night of the soul where I was a skeptic. I was an agnostic. I was borderline atheist. I've read them all. And I believe that just on the face of it, the Bible stands apart. And I think there are several reasons why the Bible is just different. And we need to be able to, to know these differences. We need to be prepared to talk about these differences between the Bible and other religious texts because it makes what we believe stand apart. It makes what we stand for exceptional, I believe. Oops, there goes the offering. Anyway, I just kicked the basket of offering money down there. So, sorry, God, it's his money. So, anyway... Uh, so the, uh, the, the, the differences begin, I think, with uh, the diversity of the Bible itself, how the Bible came together. We've been talking about this the last few weeks. Uh, really important distinction here. No other holy book can even come close to the diversity that brought forth the Bible. By diversity, I mean over 40 different authors on three different continents writing in three different languages uh, from different cultures over 1,000 to 1,500 years time. All these different perspectives. My skeptical mind needs to know there were all these different perspectives testifying to the same truth. All these different people in different places speaking different languages, giving the same witness, giving the same testimony. This matters so much to my cynical self. Because I don't think I could submit myself to a religion that hinged on the testimony of one man who said it was revealed to him in secret and no one else could be privy to that. You know what I'm saying? Like this matters so much, I think, to the validity of our claims. And the diversity of how the Bible came together is even more stunning when you consider it in light of the Bible's uniformity. The uniformity of scripture, the uniformity of this story that's told over a thousand year time period by 40 different people in three different continents and three different languages in nine different genres. Y'all with me? I'm going fast. Y'all with me? So the uniformity of the story the Bible tells, it's one seamless story about the unbreakable love of this one God whose core character doesn't change and his core conviction to be in loving, forgiving relationship with you and with me and to redeem all of creation is the same in Genesis as it is in the book of Revelation. It's stunning when you think about it, especially when compared to other religious texts, that kind of uniformity, I think, is unheard of, given the different sources. You know, some of the authors of the Bible were kings, scholars. Others were fishermen, construction workers. Matthew worked for the IRS. How many of you would trust the word of an IRS man if it was just him? You know, he, he is one of many voices testifying to the same truth. Third, I, I uh, love how historically, uh, how historically accurate and authentic the Bible is, the Bible's historicity. I'm not sure any religious text has the same kind of historical backing. I don't know. I probably shouldn't say that so absolutely. But in my experience, the Bible's historical authenticity brings me comfort, brings me peace, and helps me to be more confident and the Bible's trustworthiness because nothing, no other book on earth has been put through the ringer by cynics and skeptics as much as the Bible has. And it remains. How? Why? One thing that's really helped our cause is the advent of 
scientific research, especially in the field of archaeology. Because there was a time after the Enlightenment that people started really picking the Bible apart and saying, how much of this stuff is really fiction? Because we don't have any record of a city called Jericho. Well, then archaeologists found Jericho with a wall around it that at some point in some cataclysmic event seemed to have fallen down. Another example is Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate was for several generations thought to be a fictional character because the Roman records, and Romans kept really good records, the Romans didn't have any record of a guy named Pontius Pilate. And so maybe the guys that wrote the Bible made him up. He's a fictional character. Maybe the whole story's made up. And then they found this stone with the inscription on it that said, that mentioned this guy named Pontius Pilate and called him the prefect in Judea in the first century, again, validating the biblical record. Now, I don't need science to give me, to give my faith, you know, uh, you know proof or whatever, but this stuff really helps, again, my cynical mind uh, uh, get around to believing more fully. All right. Um, now, one argument that you're going to hear a lot, and you probably already have heard it, maybe some of you ask uh, this question a lot, is about all the translations of the Bible. Uh, you've probably heard there, the Bible has been translated so many times, who knows what's right? You know, uh, who knows how many differences there are? I want to talk uh, just briefly about uh, how the uh, historical record actually stands in favor of the legitimacy of the Bible. There are over 5,600 manuscripts, ancient manuscripts, uh, of the New Testament alone. That is a huge number. Compared to other texts, religious and non-religious ancient texts, there is nothing like the Bible in terms of the number of manuscripts that we have today. And since then, uh, the Bible has been translated hundreds of times. You all know that. So you would think that there are just these massive differences from one version to another, right? You would think that there's just all these problems with it. But literary analysis have looked at all of these ancient manuscripts and they've compared the manuscripts to each other. Then they've compared modern translations to the ancient manuscripts and it all kind of lines up to this crazy figure of 99.5% accuracy among the ancient manuscripts and how they compare with today's versions. 99.5%. There's some discrepancies. It's fairly minor. To give you a, a, a comparison to, uh, to, to look at is I'll, I'll, I'll use Homer's The Iliad, right? So Homer's The Iliad is, is, uh, is the second most uh, 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 common uh, manuscript to find, ancient manuscript, right? So there's 600 copies of Homer's The Iliad compared to 5,000 plus of the Bible, New Testament. Literary analysis have looked Analysts have looked at Homer's The Iliad and all of those ancient manuscripts, and they have found them to be shockingly accurate, but only to the tune of 95%. 95% accurate from one ancient manuscript to the other. That's pretty great compared to other stuff. It doesn't touch the Bible's 99.5% among the 5,000 manuscripts that we have. Now, what's interesting to me is that you will never hear a college professor questioning the legitimacy of Homer's The Iliad. You will never hear a college professor do that, right? But you will always experience college professors trying to undercut the legitimacy of the Bible when the case just really isn't there. The Bible's historicity stands, I think, in stark contrast to many other religious texts.
There is uh, the question of the Bible's beauty as well, and I don't want to spend too much time on this part because beauty is subjective. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder, they say, but I will tell you I have read and reread almost every major religious text that's ever been written, and I'm trying to be as objective as I can when I tell you that nothing can compare to the beauty that you will find on the pages of Scripture. 27% of this book is poetry. 27% over a fourth of the Bible is art. That should tell you something. Almost half of this book is storytelling. Stories. Like the ones Jesus told. Our Bible is different. I don't think anything can compare to its beauty. Beautiful stories. I love the stories of heroines, female heroes that stood out in a patriarchal culture. Heroes like Ruth and Esther, heroes like Deborah and Mary that stood out and because of them we are here today. Those stories are especially meaningful and helpful to daddies like me of little girls who are heroic in their own right and need someone heroic to look up to. It is a beautiful book. It is a beautiful story. Fifth, uh, we're going to do seven of these. I was going to do ten. I'm going to do seven because the building's on fire. But fifth, <laughs> there's the, I think the important point of the Bible's sufficiency. We good? All right. I know if you're rushing the stage for something. All right. So coming to save my life. There's like a fire behind me now or something. So uh, the, the Bible's sufficiency. Here's what I mean. The Bible's sufficiency. Uh, sufficiency means that when you read the Bible, you don't need any supplemental material to understand the Bible's point. And this is unique. You don't think about it. This is really important. If the Bible was the only book you ever read, you would know enough about God to find salvation. You cannot say the same thing for just about any other religious book. As I said before, the Quran depends heavily on the Bible. You must know the Bible for the Quran to make any sense. The Book of Mormon works in the same way. From our perspective, from a Christian perspective, the Jewish Bible is incomplete in its own right. It doesn't have a resolution. It doesn't have the hope of the future spelled out. For us, the Bible is sufficient in its own right. Sixth, uh, the Bible, and this is important, the Bible is not a prescriptive religious document. The Bible is descriptive. This is vital for skeptics like me. And here's what this means. Most of the writers of the Bible, all, all the writers of the Bible, except for Moses, who wrote the first five books and kind of knew what he was doing when he wrote those books, we think. The rest of the Bible is guys that are describing events that they've already seen. They're writing stuff down that they've already witnessed. They are not hiding away in secret, receiving some private revelation from God that they emerge from the cave and go, you must follow me now. You must obey me now because look what I've got. That's not how the Bible came together. The guys that wrote the Bible didn't know they were writing the Bible. They were just describing crazy stuff that was happening. And it was years later that the church pulled their writings together and said, we need to pay special attention to these books. And so what you have here is not men that emerge from caves with some manipulative, prescribed religious dogma. What you have are events, extraordinary events being described by people who can't believe what they have witnessed. Seventh and finally, this, this answer, this one's going to blow your mind. What really I love the most about the Bible 
is that it hinges on Jesus. How many of you did not see that coming? Jesus, right? Uh, I, I kind of joke about it, but, but I love the fact that the whole Bible story hinges on Jesus because I don't think there's any stronger case you can make for the Bible's validity than the life of Jesus. And the fact that for us, the Old Testament contains prophecies. We don't talk about prophecies a lot in this church yet, but like there's 250 prophecies in the Old Testament that appear to point straight to the life of Jesus. And if you're really a skeptic, you can say, well, some of those might not have been for Jesus. Okay, well, I'm telling you, 60 of them undeniably about Jesus. And they were written five to 600 years before Jesus walked the earth. And Jesus is their fulfillment. Prophecies about where he was born and how he would be born and to whom he would be born and uh, the things that he would say and do, the things that he would teach, how he would be betrayed, how he would be mocked, how he would die, how he would rise, what he would do after the resurrection. All of these things were, were predicted in the Old Testament text. And I love that Jesus in his life is where the Bible hinges. For me, uh, Jesus is the key figure here because in Jesus, the door is thrown wide open. It's not just about belonging to the right group anymore. Because of Jesus, you don't have to say the right prayer or, you know, spell or whatever anymore to be loved by God. Be because of Jesus, you don't have to even believe the right thing anymore to be loved by God. Jesus made it clear that God loved you before you made the right choice. God loves you if you make the wrong choice today. He loves you the same as someone that makes the right one. Jesus throws the door wide open, and what I see in Jesus is the fulfillment of the Bible's initial diversity. And so you have this extreme diversity that gave root to the Bible, and then in Jesus we see the, 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 the flower of that diversity taking shape in the world because of Jesus. You have brothers and sisters who don't look like you. Brothers and sisters who aren't from the same kind of family as you. Brothers and sisters who don't talk like you or vote like you or think like you or read this book quite like you. Because of Jesus, you have 500 million brothers and sisters in Africa right now worshiping the same God you do. Because of Jesus, you have 350 million brothers and sisters in South America. Over 100 million brothers and sisters in China living out their faith in secret for fear of an oppressive government. And they would do anything to hold a copy of this in public, as I'm doing freely. Now, because of Jesus, the door has been thrown wide open. All right. There are, there are some questions that remain. I know this. Uh, there's a question of how we are to behave as Christians in light of the differences we might have with people that aren't like us. And I want to go through this uh, really quickly. Jesus... Jesus himself tackles this in uh, the scripture that's in your study guides, it's, uh, Luke chapter 9. Because of time and fire and stuff, I'm not going to read through this. You guys read through it with your study guides and things like that. Basically what Jesus says here is that his disciples want to strike somebody down or curse somebody because they are casting out demons, doing good things, but not in Jesus' name, not with him. Or they're doing it in his name, but not with him, right? And Jesus said, look, if, if they're not against us, then they're for us. And let's not alienate everybody that 
we know that doesn't agree with us on every point. I think that's really important for us, for you, as you engage conversations with non-Christian friends, or people that you work with, people that you live with, your family, people online who don't share your worldview. There's five things I want you to remember. First of all, it never hurts to say, I'm sorry. As Christians, we should always be willing to apologize. That's what I mean with this. More often than not, the people that come to you with a bone to pick about Christianity, people that come to you and say the most hurtful things about Christianity are the ones who've been the hurt most by Christians. They're the ones who have encountered really exclusive or judgmental Christians that kicked them out or kept them out or whatever. So start with some humility. Say, I'm sorry that that happened. I'm sorry people have hurt you in the name of Jesus. You can repent of that on their behalf, right? Secondly, be merciful. I was not merciful with the Tunisian friend uh, at college, right? Be merciful. People are broken. Broken people say hurtful things. Do not repay evil for evil. Be merciful. Take a breath and be gentle. Number three is very important. Don't make false claims about other people's religion. If you don't know, say, I don't know. Just because you heard it on Fox News or MSNBC doesn't make it true. You, you, you shouldn't repeat things until you do your homework. Be respectful of other people's religions. Don't make ignorant claims against them. Fourth, know that it is biblical for you to find common ground with people that don't share your worldview, don't share your religion. It's biblical to find the things you have in common. The best example of this is from the book of Acts, uh, chapter 17, where Paul is preaching in the Greek capital, the city of Athens, among some scholarly people. And Paul preaches to them for the first time about the gospel. And what do you think he does? Paul, at first, Paul congratulates them on their piety. He says, I know you guys are devout. I see that you are religious. And then he uses three different references from their popular culture in his first Christian sermon, and not in a condescending way. He says, I know that you've heard that in God we live and move and have our being. Y'all thought Paul made that up. He's quoting an ancient Greek poem that they would have known. He uses it and finds common ground with them. Paul says, we are all God's offspring. Y'all think Paul is just being biblical. Well, maybe, but Paul is quoting another Greek poem that he knew because he'd done his homework. And uh, he, he does so in a respectful way. Always look for common ground. It's always there. Finally, keep the focus of your conversations on Jesus and his love. Keep the focus of your talks on people, with people that you disagree with on Jesus and his love. Remember, Jesus welcomed everyone. Remember, Jesus spent more time on the streets than he did in the synagogue. And remember that Jesus told stories about everyday things instead of forcing religion down people's throats. I promise you two things. If you follow in the path of Jesus, you will have more success sharing the gospel in meaningful ways, and you will be assaulted by far fewer Tunisians than you ever thought possible, right? You won't find yourself in that kind of a heated debate and heated argument. Finally, I'll close uh, with this, guys. In John 17, Jesus says, Jesus says, God, your word is truth. Your word is truth. And Jesus is actually right or he's not. 
he actually is who he said he was, or he's not. This word is what he said it is, or it is not. We all have a choice to make about that. The good news of Jesus is that no matter what choice you choose today, you are loved by God exactly the same. Jesus said, if you really want to know what God is like, all you have to picture is a father who hasn't seen his son in a while or his daughter. They've left home and he stands on the front porch looking out into the distance, waiting to get some glimmer of hope, some glimpse of them coming back. And when he sees them coming back, he sees their silhouette on the horizon. He, he runs toward them to embrace them and kiss them and throw them a party and welcome them back into the family. Jesus says, God is like that. Not all that religious stuff you've heard about. God is a father who wants his kid back. So no matter what choice you make today, you're loved the same. If, if, if you came here feeling like you need to try something different, if you came here feeling like you need to stop bowing before the idols of success and reputation, if all of that living with yourself at the center of the world is wearing you out with no return on your investment. I'm inviting you to try something else today. I was going to invite you to just give Jesus one week of your life. Trust Jesus with one week. Get up 10 minutes early every morning or stay up 10 minutes later every night. Spend that 10 minutes in the Word, in a gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, and in prayer. Just give Jesus a little opening and I'm guessing your life might change forever. I believe with all my skeptical heart that Jesus is who he said he was and his word is trustworthy and true and you can build your life on the foundation of this book. Let's go to God in prayer.